So I want to invite you to turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. We are looking at the third church in the list of seven churches. And as we start today, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to think about times in your life when you understood that what you wanted was not what you should choose. It's not that hard, is it? What you wanted is not what you should choose. Whether it's in the middle of a conversation where you are just so frustrated that you want to choke the person on the other side, and you know that what you want is not what you should choose. Simple things like knowing that maybe you want to buy something, but you understand that it is not a good financial decision, or you want to eat something that is not going to do well for you physically. In these simple things, we can actually be building a muscle, practicing following Jesus. In other words, we can take simple choices. When we see a big picture, when we see what Jesus says to the church of Pergamum, we can see some realities of what it takes to walk healthy in this spiritual life. We can reject what seems more desirable in this world because we see what is more valuable in eternity. Isn't that a pretty cool thing? It isn't that getting up early in the morning, even though I don't want to get up early, is necessarily more spiritual, but it can be part of our strategy of bringing our humanity under control, of pushing down my human desires and, and, and working against living by my desire, by my comfort, by convenience. I think, now this is just a theory, but I think that one of the strategies the enemy has in our world, in the church, right here in our area and in our church, is to continually make the church of Jesus Christ back up and say, we don't want to be inconvenient. We don't want to ask too much. We don't want to take too much of your time. We don't, and just back up, back up, back up into the darkness. Why? Because that's the thing that matters. And you think about all the stuff on your schedule that wraps you up and ties you up. We have to discipline ourselves out of our fleshly pattern of living by our desires, our comforts, and our convenience. And we need to connect our actions to the larger picture so that you can take your budget decisions, your diet decisions, your entertainment choices, your sleep schedule, and whatever you do where you say no to what you want in order to believe that something better is coming from your no and work that into a spiritual muscle because we're going to read a letter to the church of Pergamum. Jesus has these words, and I think what we'll see is that this letter still challenges us. The question of the letter is basically this, and we'll, we'll pull it apart so that you can see it. I don't know that you just get it without having some of the background or whatever, but here's the question. Are we believers who live more for this world than the next? Maybe even more rubber meets the road. Are we people who trust more in what we want than what Jesus has for us. Look at your prayer life. Look at your contentment level. Look at your happiness. Do we trust more in what I want than what Jesus has for us? Or are we not even realizing that a trap has been set for us that will feel really good, 
but will pull us away from Jesus. How would we let go? How would we fight back the controlling desire of our flesh that wants us to chase what we want, that wants us to live in what feels good? How would you do that? I wonder if you look back over the course of this week, have you done that somewhere? In your life, have you made a choice to push back the, the natural tendency of human beings to chase what we want? I think we talk about this all the time in church. Today, my question is, do we need to stop just talking about it, hearing about it, thinking about it, agreeing with it, and maybe get actually down to doing it? Get down to the business of giving our lives fully over to Jesus and recognize where we are getting pulled away from that. So follow along with me in, in Revelation chapter two. We're gonna start with verses 12 and 13. It says this, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So this is not somebody's conjecture. This is Jesus speaking to Pergamum. And it is a pretty interesting description of their hometown. He says, it is Satan's home where Satan has his throne. Wow. Who wants to live there? Put that on the brochure, right? I want to live where Satan has his throne. What does that mean? It was a place of wealth, a place of status, a place of culture, full of different religions. It was one of the most beautiful cities in Asia. It was the capital of Asia and had been for over 250 years at this point. So it was a, a place of power, a place of influence. It had one giant mountain that overlooked the city. And on the top of this, there was a, an altar to the primary Greek god, Zeus. And it was the calling card of the city. You knew you were in Pergamum because there's the altar to Zeus. As a matter of fact, their, their worship, I think this is important, their worship of the gods, they worshiped all the gods like all Roman provinces did, but their worship focused on four gods, Zeus and Athena. Zeus and Athena were a couple and they were seen as the primary gods, the, the most superior, the supreme gods. But they also worshiped two other gods. One was Dionysus, Dionysus was the god of party. Literally, he was the god of wine and pleasure. All right? He was the god of party. Let's have a good time. And he was also therefore thought to be the god of madness and suffering, which is the result of following the god of party, right? I mean, that literally, that's how, that's how they thought about him. He is the God of madness. He's the God without limits. He's the God of just chasing fun and pleasure and drinking wine. So they, but they worshiped him. Why would you worship a God like that? I don't know. Look around at your world. God of Dionysus. The other God that they worshiped, that was probably the, the touchstone God of this place that was unique to them, how they worshiped him, was a God named Asclepios. And Asclepios was also called Savior. He was the God of healing. So if you wanted to get healthy and you wanted to have fun and you wanted power, 
Pergamum was your place. Now, this God of Asclepius, he was a God that was depicted by the image of a snake. And you may have seen him because in some, in some sense, he is represented today with the snake on the pole with the doctors. This is how they worshiped him. He had a temple. And in that temple, there were innumerable non-venomous snakes. And if you wanted to get healed, you would go put up your bed in the temple and hope that one of these snakes would touch you so that you could be healed. Yeah, that's a little different worship service than we have, right? So these are the gods that they worship. And they say this, basically, come to Pergamum, we will fix your life. Here's the way, power, pleasure, granting your desires. You can be healthy, you can be wealthy, you can have it all. And it will make your life right. This is the place to be. This city was also famous for its huge library. And legend says that parchment was invented there because they got into a fight with Egypt and Egypt decided they would no longer send them a papyrus to write on. So out of necessity, this city invented parchment so that they could write stuff. So it was a city with lots of knowledge, lots of learning. Their library was second only to the library of Alexandria in Egypt. So they were very proud of it. They, had a, they were in a, a city of information, of learning, of knowledge. Jesus says this city is Satan's throne. This is Satan's hometown. The most natural understanding of that description would be that altar to Zeus on top of the mountain, 18 foot high, horseshoe shape with almost 450 feet around. And it looked like a place for a God to sit and look down over the people. And Jesus says, yeah, that, you know what that is. That's Satan's throne. Most likely what Jesus is trying to get them to, to recognize and to, to embrace is that this is a culture that sees idolatry as wholesome and good while it is spiritually poisonous and deadly. It is a culture that says those who won't come in line with seeing, worshiping these gods as good, as life-giving, as salvation, those who won't come in line with worshiping those gods are dangerous and enemies of the state to be put to death. Basically, they say, you have to believe that what we are trusting and what we are believing, though these things are good and right. And if you don't believe it, we will use all of our power to discredit you or silence you. Does that sound familiar? It's almost like we could just call like where we live Pergamum, right? What does Jesus have to say to them? So if you can identify with a world that lives for power and pleasure and knowledge and information and a world that wants to force people who follow Jesus to come in line with what they believe is the hope for the world, even though it is a false hope, if you can understand that, then these words are really important to us, aren't they? So what does Jesus have to say to them? Fight back. I don't think so. Run away. No. Live on high alert for any danger. Make sure that they don't do anything to you. Make sure they don't take any of your rights away. Make sure the right people are in power. Oh, these are our answers. Maybe we should find out what Jesus' answers are. Maybe we should live like believers in Pergamum. 
Jesus doesn't say any of that. He speaks to a church that is in this world, but not of this world. He speaks to a church that can overcome the world without any natural human methods. Believers, this world is starving for us to act like God is enough. Like we don't need all the debates and all the arguments and all the wrestling for power in order for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. So what does Jesus say to them? Well, he starts with affirming that they are already living apart from this world. You have remained true, even though it, you are put uh, to, uh, get up against torture and death. We have no idea who this Antipas was, really. There's no record of him. There's no legend about him or anything like that. But Jesus knew who he was. And the people of this town knew who he was. He was someone who had been put to death publicly to intimidate believers into saying, you better come in line or this is what's going to happen to you. And Jesus said, you didn't come in line because that threat of death was nothing to you. I wonder how we would do with a threat like that. Don't go to church today, you could die. Strangely, I actually think we would do better than, with that than with the actual traps the enemy has laid out for us. Jesus has a, a, the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, truth and justice. And so this city, well, that, that's an important image because in this city, city the, the rulers of the city thought that they held the sword. Worship the emperor, and if you don't, you will die. Jesus' words to his people are a reminder that, listen, the world's leaders and the world's power think they hold power, but I hold the power not them. You want to stand up in this world? Believe that. Believe that God is the one who is the final judge over all the earth. And so we can live like we have nothing to fear from this world. We can live like the ultimate judge will set all things right. We can live unconcerned about what the world is saying or doing or threatening or offering when we are clear on where our hope is. But in Satan's hometown, in his base of operations, Jesus says persecution is not what's giving them spiritual problems. You have stood up to persecution, but there's something else that's giving them problems. Read, me, read with me verses 14 and 15. It says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You, I have some things against you. It's not that you wouldn't stand up to the threats of death. It's not that you would, would bow down to idols. No, you, you did all those things. But you have a different trap. The trap for you is you're being drawn away by your own desires. He's not using, Satan's not using persecution on his home court. That, that doesn't work. What he used was deception. He used deception, just like with Balaam. Remember we went through numbers in the story of Balaam. We took like four or five weeks to go through the story of Balaam. Balaam was a, a prophet that, that was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to come and curse God's people. But God's people couldn't be defeated in battle by strength. So Balaam's advice, because he wanted money, was eventually to let Israel's own human, fleshly lusts and desires pull them into sinful living so that they lose their way. 
He couldn't put a hex on Israel, so in order to get paid, he found another way to defeat Israel, to use their own desires as a cover for choosing what would destroy them spiritually. Make no mistakes, this was not about just disobeying a rule. God is not a God of, you do this, you do that, these are the rules, these are the rules, these are the rules. This was a contest between is God trustworthy? Is his plan for my life good enough? Or do I need to skirt God's rules and God's ideas in order for me to really have a satisfied life? That is the thing that is in front of us all the time. Is he enough? Is he right? Is he good or not? Convincing Israel that their desires were better guides for a good and desirable life than God's words or instructions is what brought about the downfall of Israel and God's judgment on them. That is the teaching of Balaam, who taught them to let their desires be their guide, to measure their lives by what they want. This is the gospel according to Satan, and it is the gospel that is being sold to us every single day. Maybe we live where Satan's throne is. Maybe this country is his home. People think this all the time. God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing these things wrong? Why aren't you showing up when I need you? It isn't worth it to follow Jesus if it means you can't have the life you want or the life you think you deserve. Have you heard this? Have you felt this? You also have people who are the, teaching, the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which again, unclear, but we assume it was along the same lines. The later writings tell us that these people who were the, the, the people who followed the teaching of the Nicolaitans were, were people who believed that Christian liberty allowed believers to participate in pagan orgies as a part of temple rituals. And they, they did it like this. They said, it's okay to go to the temple and to participate in the orgies because God forgives us. Basically, as long as you call yourself a Christian, you can do whatever you want. I mean, being God, one of God's people has its privileges. Like the idea that God forgives us for living like we're lost and we can just go on without consequences. Good thing we are God's people and we can do what we want. It is a false gospel. There is no hope in it. Jesus is saying to this church, you stood strong when the stakes were highest, but you lost your way because you didn't realize that chasing your desires was a trap. And I'm here to tell us today, church, Christianity isn't convenient. It's not about comfort. It's not about self-centered or self-seeking living. It is about serving. It is about giving. It is about loving. It is about sacrificing. And how exactly do we pair that with trying to use spiritual words to say you can live however you want and be okay with God. Or your prayer life should be focused on all the things you think you're missing in your life and try to get as much as you can from God. I think this letter tells us these two things don't go together. And Jesus says you can't hold both of those things. You will lose your way. You will lose your way. And so verses 16 and 17, he says, repent therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And there's some good stuff in that manna and stone, but we're gonna just kind of focus on this. Jesus says this, you have been alerted that living by your desires is going to kill you. 
It's going to wreck you. We've experienced it in small ways. When I say, think about a time when you knew what you wanted to do wasn't what you should do. We've all experienced it in small ways. That's just a taste of this bigger picture. And Jesus says, now that I've said it to you, there's just one response. Turn around. See that you're headed the wrong way. See that you're headed in the wrong direction and correct course. Stop living like knowing Jesus doesn't matter or doesn't change you. Stop believing that you never need to sacrifice anything or deny yourself what you want to follow Jesus. Your desires were not the pathway to salvation originally, and they still are not. What I know is this, our Savior loves us too much to let us be lost and let us keep walking into error, into destructive behaviors. He, he's going to come and get us, right? He's gonna, and that's what he says, I'm going to come and get you. And it probably won't feel good when he does. But I know this about my Savior, he is a God of redemption. When he comes, he will pull us out of the darkness and back into light. We can choose it because we believe him, because we trust him, or he can do it for us. But one way or the other, he's not going to leave us lost. Some of the misery in the lives of believers today is because Jesus cares too much about you to let you live lost and think that it's the way to live. He's pulling you. He's calling to you. He's saying for you to come back. So now as we turn our hearts to communion, I want to show you how this idea connects to Jesus' death and his experience on the night right before he died.